0: Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. You'll never have the sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this you crazy mother!
1: Welcome to the Dead Pundits Society. Now here is your host, Adam Proctor. Welcome to this week's episode of the Dead Pundit Society. Once again, my name is Adam Proctor. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, totally recognize there are a lot of podcasts out there these days, so I appreciate that you're tuning into this one. Coming straight for your ear holes, I've got a fantastic interview with Seth Ackerman about how to found a new labor party in the United States. Stay tuned. But first, a quick word about the show. As most of you know by now, this is a brand new podcast. Um, Some of you may recognize my voice from other podcast exploits. For those of you who do not, well, a brief introduction. This podcast will be attempting to forge a new left analysis, exploring some of the more cutting edge and classic developments in left and socialist politics today. Um... Uh, by way of a quick biographical introduction, I happen to really like podcasts, so this, this one has been a long time in the making, you might say. Um, I, I, you could say I'm doing this podcast for purely selfish reasons. Um, I wanted to have a platform to invite some of the more interesting and insightful people uh, to come talk to me about what they're up to, uh, what their knowledge base might be, and, and and how to tackle some of the more pressing problems. That are faced by our society today and you know along the way i hope we have some fun i hope we tell some jokes um i hope we have some interaction with you guys out there uh via social media and so on and so forth so stay tuned this is going to be a barrel of laughs and a lot of fun thanks for playing along a third major reason for accepting our citizenship responsibilities and working at them is the presence within America of socialists and communist propagandists dedicated to the establishment of a new order. The communist fifth columnists among us are working for world dictatorship. To accomplish this, their strategy is to undermine the confidence of our people in the American system and the principles on which it stands. The socialists among us seek to bring about a gradual change in our system by gradually destroying the principle of the private ownership of property and substituting the socialist principle of government ownership. All right, welcome back to the show, everyone. Joining me today via the interwebs is uh, Mr. Seth Ackerman. Uh, Seth is a Ph.D. candidate in history at Cornell University, as well as a member of the Jacobin Magazine editorial board. Uh, But most importantly for our purposes, he's joining us today to talk about his really fantastic article that appeared in the print version of Jacobin Magazine a couple issues back. Uh, This article is called A Blueprint for a New Party, uh, where he argues, in short, that after Bernie Sanders, we need to think seriously about what it would take to form a democratic organization rooted in the working class. Seth, welcome to the Dead Pundit Society. How are you?
2: I'm good. Thanks for having me on here.
1: Absolutely. The pleasure is all on this end. So let's start off with some current events here. Uh, the first question I have for you is Tom Perez? Question mark What does this mean? <laughs> <laughs> what does this mean uh, for for your sort of thesis? It's it, it tends to support your argument that we need to start thinking about creating an, a party of a new type, huh?
2: Yeah, I think it does. Um, when I mean, I remember when uh, when Keith Ellison first. Uh, announced he was running for this position, and Bernie Sanders came out and very forcefully endorsed him. And it was clear that this was like a uh, something that Sanders uh, had, you know, put in a lot of emphasis on. I, I, people got very excited about it, uh, and I was always a little bit skeptical, not because I think there's anything wrong with Ellison or or that uh, there would be anything wrong with him being uh, the DNC chair. Uh, and in fact, you know, I, I guess all else equal, I was I was hoping that he would make it, just like most people were. Um, but you know, I, I was skeptical in, in part because of just in, in researching uh, this article, and and it's such a central part of what I was trying to to say is, is is sort of is is one of the sort of implications of what I was saying is that actually the position the that job DNC chair is not is not really a. And actually, I realize this is echoing the line that a lot of the sort of Vox.com types were saying, but it's really not a very important position, Um, at at least from the point of view of trying to push the party to the left or whatever, you know, advance the left-wing kind of politics. Um, You know, a, a party chairman in the United States is not like uh, the lead a party leader in most other countries, you know in two thousand and fifteen, Jeremy Corbyn ran for party leader along with a bunch of other people, and he won and that was a revolution in british politics absolutely um, in america there's no one there 's never going to be a revolution in American politics because of the election of a of a dNC or an r n c chief because these are people who have no authority over over policy, uh, the way that Jeremy Corbyn has authority over the policy of uh, of the Labour Party. Uh, you know, he chooses the shadow cabinet over there in Britain. DNC chief doesn't choose anything approaching a shadow cabinet. Really, this is a job that's in charge mainly of fundraising. That's the main thing, uh, fundraising, and then just sort of a managerial role. Um, so uh, I was, you know, um, I had nothing against Ellison running or, or winning um, but I was the thing that was I was afraid of is that was that um, especially when Chuck Schumer came out and endorsed uh, Ellison as well, uh, I thought, well, you know why wouldn't Schumer endorse him if that could quiet down dissent within the party and you know make people feel like we're all on the same team when it's actually not a very important position, maybe that's the smart thing for Chuck Schumer to do. And then my fear was that if Ellison won, which I guess I assumed I, I thought he would probably would win with that kind of Support. Um, I was afraid that people would think, "Ah, oh, well, we won. You know, the battle's over. We won. We've captured the Democratic Party because, after all, <laughs> he's the head of the Democratic Party." But of course, that's not the way it is at all, and and it's not that way because of all the kind of structural forces uh, and 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 the structure of American political machinery that I talked about in the piece.
1: Absolutely. So that, that you, you touched on the word exactly that I was going to press you on next is structural, right? So you seem to be arguing for a certain structural case. Uh, but before we get there, um, it seems to me that, that we're, you know, this is really indicative of the, the awful position we're in right now with the Democratic Party being the bearer of so-called progressive values. But it seems like, you know, having Ellison in that position, the best the best thing that we would benefit from that in terms of, of that uh, development would have been that we wouldn't have a DNC chair who would actively uh, sabotage <laughs> the left's uh, electoral efforts in the party, as we saw with Debbie Wasserman Schultz. <laughs> so that, that, that seems to me like right now we're, we're strictly just opting for or we're, we're desperately hoping for a DNC leadership that will not sabotage uh, its own left wing. So that's the sort of state of affairs we're in right now.
2: Yeah, I th- yeah, no, I mean, but I, th- I think that's a really good point. Actually, I mean, you're right. That is, that is important. I mean, to be really specific, the, the, you know, the head of the D N, the DNC, really only has, has any, r- r- real immediate jurisdiction over. Uh, in terms of elections, over presidential elections, it does a lot of things involving sort of coordinating um, the flows of money between state parties and and uh, and um, managing all of the kind of uh, plumbing and infrastructure of of campaigns in the sense of um, you know d- dealing with data vendors and consultants and polling and things like that. But mainly, it's uh, mainly the only sort of real involvement in an actual election or an actual primary. That the DNC has is at the pre- is at the presidential level, so if four years from now there were another Sanders-like candidate uh, in the Democratic presidential primary, then you know that would be when the head of the DNC would be uh, you know a position that you wouldn't want to have an avowed enemy of the left uh, in that position. But of course, the vast majority of the offices in this country are not the presidency, um, and most of them are in addition to Congress, which has its own campaign committees that are separate. Um, although it's true that the DNC has some authority over, those, over that. Uh, but there's also all of the state parties. And there you have uh, Bernie Sanders, our revolution organization, which apparently has has been uh, running slates of candidates for local Democratic um, party um, uh, county committees and town committees uh, uh, in various states, California, for instance. Apparently, they've had a good amount of success there. And they, they managed to take over some state parties and you know I, again when I was when I was reading about that I, I, I thought you know on the one hand I, I, as, as anyone could tell from reading my piece I'm not uh, especially optimistic about the notion that it's possible to somehow take over the Democratic Party um, but on the other hand I had exactly the same thought that you had. Which is that oh, these people are taking, you know, these Sanders uh, supporters are taking over, or at least uh, winning power within state Democratic machines. Uh, that would be good if one day we were in a position where we were running candidates, and some of these candidates were running in Democratic primaries. If you have some friendly people within those party machines. Uh, Then there are certain things that, you know, that makes it a lot easier. Um, So but but on the other hand, you know, you you always want to be wary of getting too close to becoming part of the Democratic Party machinery. So it's a it's a fine line.
1: That's right. It, it seems like uh, we would be remiss, even though we're talking about sort of creating a new, more principled party of a new type uh, for, for the socialist and labor left, it seems to me that we would still be remiss in ignoring uh, the sort of battleground that the Democratic Party represents. Uh, so more recently, I believe this, this was out just a couple of days ago, uh, maybe you saw it, uh, Cynthia Dill, who is an allegedly, I guess, a human rights attorney, and she was a state senator, a Democratic state senator in uh, in Maine, uh, wrote a piece in the Press Herald uh, arguing that Democrats need to cull the fringe, starting with the Bernie bros. So, you know, as long as we have uh, members uh, of the party uh, arguing that we need to cull the Bernie bros from the party, it seems to me that we can't totally cede that ground uh, to the mainstream. And I think I think that's also another important aspect of this story, it seems.
2: Yeah, um, although I have to say that, like, you know, I, you know, you, you, when you see things like that, that is actually, in, in some ways, I'm more afraid when 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 they do the opposite. You know, when they pretend that they that they love the left and and it's all part of the same. We're all part of the same team because that's a lot more seductive. I mean, uh, this the, that's the smart thing for them to do. The dumb thing for mm-hmm. them to do uh, is, I think, what that what that person did in that in that piece. Because um, ultimately, you know. They they need the left in the sense that um, at least in the sense that a lot of the um, uh, it, it, a lot of the grassroots you know muscle in every four years comes from people who in one way or another see themselves as being on the left and they can't afford to alienate them uh, too much and and I think historically the big problem has been less uh, open and explicit hostility to the left. Right, right. Uh, from the Democratic Party, then it is this kind of lulling into complacency, um, and you know liberals, and actually not just liberals, a lot of people on the left too, for understandable reasons. Given how, when you're powerless, you and 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 sort of despairing, you're always looking for some ray of hope, and um, it's very easy for the, for demo, the Democratic powers that be to sort of bestow you know rays of hope uh, in order to keep people kind of. On, uh, in the orbit, and uh, so in some ways, who would be maybe more helpful if, if more people in the, in the party leadership took, you know, her line and you know said we must call the fringe. I think that's that's a, that's a great call to arms for the left.
1: Absolutely. That's a fantastic point. So it seems to me that what you seem to be arguing is that uh, the the folks, the Pelosi's and the Chuck Schumer's of the party uh, are trying to sort of cover over the contradictions that are embodied, the structural contradictions that are embodied by the Democratic Party, uh, whereas articles like Cynthia Dill's sort of highlight those contradictions and, and, and give us plenty of fodder to play with here on the left in terms of what we need to do next.
2: Absolutely. That's that's exactly it. And, um, you know, I I mean, yeah, it's hard to tell. You mentioned Pelosi because uh, I I was – the thing that surprised and shocked me after the election was finished was I thought that, you know, given – Given, you know, the, obviously the tremendous energy uh, and, and near success of the Sanders campaign and the vast numbers of people that he mobilized, and then the enormous acrimony of the primary campaign between supporters of Clinton and supporters of Sanders, and then, you know, and then, the, of course, the, the, the denouement of the whole thing, the, uh, the climax of it was, was that after months of saying that, uh, you know, Clinton is better despite all the things you hate about her because at least she can win, she's going to win then she loses. And so after all of that, I was I was convinced that there would be nothing but verbal praise and sunshine uh, from the Democratic Party for, for the Sanders people, even as they were probably going to do behind the scenes all the things they needed to do mm-hmm. to sort of protect themselves from it. And instead, I was surprised to see, and I still am curious about what's why this is, but I was surprised to see those comments from Pelosi where, you know, she said, we're just a capitalist party, that's, that's all there is to it. And um, you know we don't need to have a change of direction. And uh, Jennifer Palmieri, uh, the Clinton aide, going on TV and um, and saying the things that she said. Mm-hmm. I, I was actually surprised to see uh, those kinds of explicit um, statements saying, you know, no, we don't need to, to go any further left. Um, but you know, ultimately, uh, it's it, it the the issue will arise over whether the, uh, the left can be convinced that the that the democratic party is you know is a is a is a potential vehicle for the for, for the left uh and if they can be lulled into thinking that then i think you know we're just going to go back to the way things have always been
1: absolutely that's a very good point about how they've uh, the mainstream uh, democratic party establishment have have really rehabilitated their image and 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 really uh in a really puzzling and confusing way following the you know, devastating losses that they've uh, sort of mounted up over the last eight years. But I will say, if, if, if you were watching the post-election coverage, I was watching MSNBC, I was watching the live stream, um, Chuck Todd and, and some other folks, uh, Brokaw, I believe, was on there, and some other folks, and uh, you got about three hours of sobriety. <laughs> and it started at about 2 a.m., if you were awake at 2 a.m. on election uh, night, uh, you, you saw the devastation in the sobriety where you see um, the raging Cajun himself uh, basically saying, uh, along with agreeing with Tom Brokaw, you know, saying things like, well, I guess Bernie Sanders is the leader of our party now. Huh. Right. I mean, you, you yeah. saw you saw that kind of uh, introspection For a very brief period of time, from some of these party functionaries, uh, that that continued into the next days. In some senses, as we sort of uh, uh, read off the balance sheet of the Clinton campaign failures, but they really did seem to rehabilitate their image in a a really shocking way, as you've mentioned.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, you know, from their point of view, um, you know, there, there were two two figures battling it out in the Democratic primaries. Uh, And, uh, you know, Sanders obviously mobilized a lot more people, got people a lot more excited than Clinton did, even among her own supporters. And then she gets knocked out. Well, I mean, that I mean, historically, that's just been the sort of standard process is that, you know, if if uh, there's a tough primary fight and then the winner uh, ends up losing the general election, then it's whoever's, uh, you know, the the, the loser of the primary. uh, If they if they came close is like the next guy in line, you know. So that is really Kind of that is sort of the the at least the simple the sort of textbook conclusion of mm-hmm. that you'd have to conclude about what happened coming out of 2016, and you know the thing is though that I, I and I want to be I want to caution here because it's easy for us on the left to slip into this um, and slip into a an a, a way of thinking that tells us that really that this is all just about about. Different people with different political views uh, getting to choose, you know, what political direction the Democratic Party should take. And one side has its view, and the other mm-hmm. side has that view. And then it's just a question of, you know, of who's gonna who's gonna prevail in some sort of a contest. Which is kind of why this DNC chair thing took on this symbolic importance because it kind of looks on paper like that's that was that was the campaign that would. That was the race that would sort of decide the direction of the party, and and this, the nature of the Democratic Party, and really the nature of American politics beyond beyond the, the party itself, is such that there is no there is no such contest. You know what I mean? There's never the ability to choose the direction of the party, uh, to to, uh, to determine a kind of a policy profile uh, or a or a, an ideological image or orientation. There is never any such decision that's made. There's no election, there's no, you know, um, there's no meeting somewhere. No party conference
1: people, or any of Yeah, that sort
2: party of thing. conference. Where, yeah, exactly. Where those decisions are made. And that's that reflects not just the internal structure of the Democratic Party, but the sort of large macro structure of American politics generally. I mean even if somehow the DNC, you know, were taken over by by the left, by people on the left, and 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 they wanted as much as possible to transform the Democratic Party. What does that mean concretely? And the fact is mm-hmm. that you know, uh, in order for for policy to be one thing or another, that means number one that um, y- that that has to be the policy of X number of elected members of the House of Representatives and members of the Senate in the you know Democrats in the Senate, Democrats in the House would all have to converge on a particular policy if that were to be the policy of the democratic party but nobody has there's no meeting there's no election there's no anything where all of those i forget how many democrats there are right now in, in congress obviously not that many or you know not as many as there were before but mm-hmm. but th- there's no meeting where that where they all collectively make that choice instead that choice is done as it, everything is in the american system in a completely decentralized and diffuse way so that um it's not so much that it's theoretically impossible to kind of consolidate a single direction but that to but that it's the system is structured so that in order to to achieve that you'd have to achieve a really quite massive broad and 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 profound level of organization popular organization that can encompass dist, you know districts and states all over the country behind a common political project that could then project that power uh, into Thousands of different, you know, uh, elections, primaries and then general elections at, at the district level uh, in states all across the country. Uh, that is something that no one has ever really managed to do before. It's not the system. The political, our political system isn't designed to allow that sort of thing to happen. It's theoretically possible. It's what I proposed in my article is really that's what it's trying to work towards. Mm -hmm. But it's something that's never existed. It's something that sort of the system, the structure of the system naturally resists or or makes as difficult as possible. And so, you know, it's actually actually too easy to look at the Chuck Schumers of the world or the Nancy Pelosi's of the world and say they're doing what they're doing because – they are centrists or neoliberals or, or, or whatever. I mean, that's true. They are. They are. I mean, Chuck Schumer is definitely, a, you know, a, a centrist and a neoliberal. But uh, at the same time, he's also himself facing structural constraints that are imposed by the nature of the system itself.
0: Absolutely. For example,
2: you know, two years from now, as as all the political reporters point out, two years from now, there's going to be a midterm election uh, where they desperately would like to increase their numbers in the Senate. And the actual map of the what races are going to be happening are going to be mostly in red states, um, where they have not such not so great chances. Um, the Times had a, had a good article the other day about uh, the elections in the House, and you'd say, well, if the Democrats want to pick up seats in the House, then na- the, obviously the most natural places to look would be those districts where um, uh, Republicans are currently in office, but they won only by 1% or 2% or something like that. And Nate Cohn at the New York Times, he looked at what are those districts where, where Republicans hold the seats, but they only won very narrowly. So maybe they could be flipped. And and it turns out that those districts are, are mostly upscale suburban, uh, places, you know, places like or- in Orange County, California, places where, you know, every house goes for 600 or $700,000. Um, so if 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 you are the leader or a leader of the Democratic Party and you're simply trying to ensure that the party gets as close as possible or at, or or even achieves a majority so that it can make any decisions at all so that it has any power at all you have to think about those factors about how do we win in you know upscale irvine you know irvine california um and that's not it's not as if um, you know, their turn to neo, neolib- you know, their this sort of their neoliberal orientation in that case is purely a matter of their own personal p- political preferences. It's a, it's, it's imposed by the sort of the nature of, of this, the, of the system. So there's a sense in which the Democratic Party, because it is a party like the, along with the Republicans that, uh, that can only ever be a majoritarian party. In other words, Unless it can win a majority, you know, 50% plus one in, in, a, in most races or, or, in, or in roughly half the races, roughly every election, uh, then it, it sort of drops off the map. I mean, imagine a Democratic Party that won, won 40% of the seats in every chamber, in the, you know, elected chamber in the country, in the Congress, in every state legislature. Well, that means that they're completely shut out of power permanently by winning 40% of the seats. They can't win 40%. They have to win 51%. Uh, and so that sort of structural constraint is something that isn't even under the isn't even um, under the control of the people who run the Democratic Party. It's simply the world that they live in. Uh, if we were to create our own alternative uh, vehicle for political power, uh, we wouldn't necessarily be under those constraints. Uh, you know, if 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 we had a third party or a third organization uh, that after two or four years, you know, controlled five percent, ten percent. Of the legislative seats in this country, that would be an earthquake in in political history. It would be a huge victory for such a new small organization. If the Democratic Party controlled only you know ten percent, fifteen percent, or whatever of the seats, that would be a absolute catastrophe, and that would be the end of the current political system. Mm-hmm. So there's this asymmetry there that that kind of forces the Democrats, even if they even if they were to want to do otherwise, uh, to to alter their behavior in certain ways. Uh, because of this sort of short-termist electoral pressure and that's why i think the left has to be at least a little bit humble in realizing that the the democrats are the way they are not just because that's the, the way they want to be although they, they they happen to want to be that way but it's also because of the nature of the of the constraints that we're all facing under the under a the nature of the system we we have the structure of the system and b because we're living at in the res, in a world created by the results of decades of you know, neoliberalism. So that's, things are actually even harder, you know, it's not just a matter of um, capturing the flag, it's what do you do once you capture it.
1: That's a very good point. It seems to me that you're, you're, you're sort of describing the way uh, that the liberal capitalist state is uh, often ideologically constructed as this sort of neutral uh, playing field, right? Where there are various Teams, and In our case, two teams where they're trying to advance the ball, you know, and, and, and it requires votes and, and things like that to do so. But for those who read uh, too many dusty books like yourself and, 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 and myself as well, uh, one way to talk about this could be uh, the way that the neo-Marxian state theorists uh, term uh, the, the capitalist state has a certain structural selectivity. <laughs> um And that's 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 sort of a, a big big picture term. I think you know you you talked uh, in one way about how that plays out uh, in the electoral and party arena. Uh, another way is just the tremendous amounts of money that lobbyists are able uh, to give to uh, politicians and and, and, and waging uh, successful campaigns. We now interrupt this interview for a brief explanation of neo-Marxian state theory as creatively interpreted by. George Carlin. But don't take my fucking word for it.
2: You should all get off your lazy asses and read some Ralph band or Nico's Poolences for yourself. Do I have to do everything for
1: you? For fuck's sake.
0: I think you we'll have to give me credit for one thing, you because have to give me credit for they out in the, the open thing. They're out in the open now. They're not even trying to conceal it anymore. The owners of the country had—they bought their elect, got their election. They said, "We're going to get this election we we'll put you people in that court for a reason." Right, now it's back to, to earth us, for you now. We, yeah, forget all that stupid. Will you? <laughs> <laughs> They're out in the open, they're, open no. they're openly driving the bus, and we're all in the back. It's because Bush of the energy policies that
2: were created here in California, a, not as a result of a conspiracy, need, but You because don't
0: need a formal conspiracy Right. when interests converge. These people went to the same universities oh, and fraternities, please. they're it's on the same boards simple. of directors, they're in the same country clubs, they have like interests, they yes. don't need to call a meeting, they know what's good for them, it's a and they're getting piece. it. And is there used there, to be this, seven oil companies, there are... Are now three it will soon be two the things that matter in this country have been reduced in choice there are two political parties there are a handful of insurance companies there are about six or seven information but if you want a bagel there are 23 flavors because you have the illusion you have the illusion of choice right you don't get the real importance there's no exactly. freedom of choice <laughs>
1: So it seems to me that we've really deconstructed uh <laughs> the the prospects of the Democratic Party as delivering progressive reforms uh right now we've we've really uh, shown Their true colors. So let's move on to your article a little bit more explicitly. One of the big hurdles uh, that you discuss in your article are this sort of like um, this matrix of electoral laws and ballot access regulations. Uh, Beginning in the 1880s, you write uh, that the U.S. adopted some of the most authoritarian ballot access laws um, in the the so-called free world. Um, some of these were the results certainly of, like say, progressive reforms, like, say, moves for transparency or good government uh, reforms. Uh, but others were just more brazen power grabs by the two-party system. So could you tell us a little bit how you lay that argument out in your article?
2: Um, the uh, it, it used to be – there used to be no such thing as ballot access or ballot access laws. Yeah. Um, In fact, the idea that you would go—that when you vote, you go to a government-appointed polling place and you go into a booth and there's a a ballot in front of you that the government has printed—and then you have to, you know, check one box or or something—that whole concept of voting is actually relatively new. Uh, in the sense that it really only emerged anywhere in the world in the second half of the 19th century. Before that, um, g- usually uh, what would, certainly what happened what existed in, in the. US is that when you would have an election, let's say an election in the 1840s or the 1850s or 1860s, uh, an election involved um, going to the polls and there would be the, the polling place would be out in the open, would be literally like a, a, a booth or a box, often it would be, take place in a tavern or something. Um, and, but it would be out in public, and there'd be literally a ballot box, which we know, we, which we don't really see anymore when we vote. But there used to be the ballot box right there in the center, and people would line up, and they would bring their ballots with them. They would bring their tickets with them, meaning a piece of paper. All you needed to vote was to come to the polls and drop a piece of paper into the ballot box that had the names of the candidates you wanted to vote for on it and you could scratch it off you could write it on the back of an envelope and drop it in the box if you mm-hmm. wanted to you could most people in practice brought the 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 tickets that they would clip out from the newspaper if it was a democratic newspaper they would have like a ticket that you could clip out in a republican newspaper the same thing or even even more common was that when you get to the polls there would be a bunch of party agents walking around these were paid Uh, agents of the local party and they would be handing out tickets and they would also be watching very closely to see how you would vote because there was no secret ballot so you could see exactly how people were voting as they put the thing in the slip and they put the, the slip in the in the box. Uh, and in fact, they, they would color code their tickets so that it would become so that would be as easy as possible to see who people were voting for.
1: And his, historically, this was in the era. Just uh, fill, fill in our listeners and myself, uh, since you're you're the expert here. Historically, this was a time period where party machines were very powerful. Is that correct? And so there, were, there, were, there was a lot of potential for coercion in terms of uh, forcing individuals to vote certain ways. Is that right?
2: Oh, oh absolutely um, yes it was it was a time when party machines were extremely strong and it was a time when coercion was endemic um, in elections and so uh, you know not just coercion I mean coercion so that would definitely happen sometimes and that was uh, when that happened that then you were sort of that was breaking the norms of you know that was it was transgressive to engage in actual coercion mm-hmm. although it happened quite regularly what was not even really even that transgressive because it was so commonplace was bribery so um Bribery. I mean, every any time you went to a polling place, you would find the party agents. They wouldn't just be handing out the tickets. They would be giving people money in exchange for for voting the ticket, or they would given they would give people alcohol. Buy him a beer, know. right? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so you know, you find some drunk somewhere, and you and you you give him ten bucks to come to the polls with you, and you give him a drink if if he votes the right way. And so that's that was how things went. In fact, they would publish in the newspaper, in the local newspaper, they would publish how much the going price for a vote was. Um you know actual pub actually published in, in in local papers so that's that's the way the system was then there was no such thing as ballot access if you if you and I wanted to start a third party or if you wanted to run as an independent candidate or whatever um you didn't have to go register file paperwork or anything somewhere all you had to do was get get the word out that you were running you know and then um make sure that as many tickets as possible were printed up uh, that you would preferably try to hand out to as many people as possible with your name on it um, even if you didn't do that, you know, if you got the word theoretically, if you got the word out to enough people and said, write my name on a piece of paper and bring it to the polls on election day, you could win the election that way. There was no such thing as ballot access.
1: So it seems to me that some of these uh, ballot uh, access reforms were, in a sense, progressive uh, to try to cut back on some of these, um, you know, controversial practices.
2: Yeah, it was uh, definitely the secret ballot uh, was you know a, a sensible, good government reform, um, progressive. You know, in the in the broader sense of how you and I would would think of what progressivism is, I, this is just sort of common sense. I mean, ultimately, no no one force in society really came out the better for having a system where people were bribed on election day every day, or you know people were given you know alcohol to, to vote because the Democrats did it. And the Republicans did it. It's not as it was kind of a stalemate of, of crap, you know. So it's, it's not like right. uh, it's not like that was benefiting anybody. So but yes, it was a sensible, good government kind of thing to have a secret ballot. That's not the reason why they ultimately adopted these reforms, though. Or It's not the main reason. The main reason was because instability had arisen within this system, with the system of party control. And like you said, this was an era in which there were very, very strong, um, overwhelming party machines and I mean the, what, par- what the parties were really they were a business a par- the party was a business. Uh, when the governor won the election um, at the state level, when the president won the election at the presidential level, uh, then uh, immediately there was a list of X number of jobs that got to be filled and those jobs went to the party supporters um, and those when you know the guy who got in charge of the customs house, would be a party supporter, and he would get to hire all of his underlings, and they would all be party supporters, and then they were all expected to sort of tithe back a percentage of what they made. Uh-huh. Um, same thing also went for government contracts, uh, you know, for printing up uh, notices and things like that. Uh, those went to those those contracts went to the Democratic newspaper when a Democrat was governor, and they went to a Republican newspaper when the Republican was governor. And again, those newspaper editors, newspaper publishers, are, would tithe back part of that money to the party. That's how that's how the parties worked. That's how they had all the mo- the money necessary in order to hire all these employ all of these agents to go out on election day and also to you know constantly keep track of the voters in their precinct, the voters in their district, and, you know who's on the fence and stuff like that. It was all a business. So. Uh, that's that was the nature of of the party system, and it depended in order to keep the business up and, and keep it running smoothly. The party bosses, the head of the who usually at the state level was the key level there. The a party boss in a state needed to maintain a disciplined, a nis- disciplined army, and it was a constant headache. And what happened in the eighteen eighties, eighteen nineties, that ultimately led to the overturning of the system is that it, it became uh, it became unstable, and the reason. Was that when they would choose their party candidates? When they would do their nominations? You know, who, who would be the, the nominee for governor, the nominee for state legislator, and so on? Um, the way that they would make those decisions was through a series of completely informal, completely private uh, caucuses and conventions that the parties would run, and uh, you know, so um, you know, people at the lower level uh, caucus would send delegates to the county convention, and then the county. Uh, convention would send delegates uh, to, along with all the other counties, to the state convention. And that's where they would choose the governor, and then they would send delegates up to the national convention, and they would choose the presidential candidates. And um, what at the very base of the of the system, there were just sort of local informal gatherings where the local guy who is the Mr. Democrat in the in the in the neighborhood uh, would would you know ha- hold a, a caucus where you know you know in, in a private home or an office or a bar. Uh, they would uh, not try. They would try to not publicize it very much because you don't want as many. You don't want a lot of people participating. You want to be able to sew these kinds of decisions up yourself. So you know, the, Mr. Democrat and a few of his sort of cronies would get together and they would hold a caucus. And anybody who was a, a, a Democrat, let's say, if, the, if it's a Democratic caucus in good standing, could show up in theory. Uh, but most people didn't. Uh, and participate to, to decide who would be the delegates that would be sent up to the county convention and so on. Uh, and uh, the, this was completely a private matter, a private organization, and there, there weren't even any written rules uh, in these lo- in these local le- level gatherings. So not even it's not only private but like completely informal. And uh, that worked fine for a while in a society that was very rural and uh, people knew each other face to face and stuff. But then eventually it got to a point where um, you would get ambitious politicians who would, instead of just sort of trying to curry favor with whoever Mr. Democrat was in a local town or local precinct, uh, they would actually try to campaign. So somebody wants to be um, somebody wants to be, you know, the next uh, the next state legislator from the, from that district, and uh, they would go around and they would really try to convince people vote you know vote for delegates who will be loyal to me, send them up, not not delegates who will be loyal to somebody else. And, you know, but then you'd get rival candidates uh, trying to uh, drum up uh, nomination votes. And since there were no rules, and since you can imagine, and since there's really there's money involved, I mean, whoever wins ultimately uh, has control one way or the other over a lot of money, uh, you would get violence. You get violence, you get chaos. And then the worst thing is that because there was no ballot access, because anybody could just sort of um, get people to vote for them just by telling them to bring their, a piece of paper with their name on it, you would get people who you know, situations where the can the nominee the Democratic nominee let's say for the state legislative uh, seat um, would uh, have the defeated rival who lost the the the, the nomination uh, go out and draw uh, print up a bunch of tickets that looked like the regular party ticket and then at the bottom they would cross out or they knife out paste out the the name of the uh, duly appointed Democratic nominee and they put in their own name. And they just hand out those tickets as if th- those were the actual Democratic ballots.
1: Sounds like the way we used to make fake IDs uh, when when I was in college, underage, exactly. the bars, right?
2: Exactly, and and also also heavily alcohol based in this in this scenario too. Yeah, so
1: it's apps. So, there we are. So that
2: was um, that was a real that was the real problem uh, for the party bosses because you know you, you nominate somebody, you go through this process of nomination, and then not only are the meetings getting disrupted in these giant fights, and sometimes you know there'd be brawls that would break out. But you uh, also then you would nominate your candidate and then you would get people showing up and voting, you know, being fooled, thinking they're voting for the Democratic ticket, but they're actually voting for... Not your nominee, so it was. There was sort of the system was disintegrating.
1: I see. So there was a level of uh, uh, the party bosses were unable to maintain control. Uh, given, exactly. Uh, given the current system, so it wasn't so much uh, that they were enlightened and they wanted to do the right thing by implementing these reforms. It was the case that the system wasn't working for them any longer. Exactly. And they, and they needed to sort of uh, consolidate th- those those legal structures a little bit better.
2: Exactly. So that was that was the na- that was the, the the uh, trigger originally for the state legislative reforms that, um, started, the very first one was in Massachusetts and then it spread eventually across the country, uh, within a pretty short amount of time, um, until pretty much every state, um, and now every state, uh, I believe, uh, has in one form or another, the system that we have today. So number one, you have a secret ballot, obviously, and number two, um, you have, uh, uh, you have an Australian ballot, meaning that it's not only secret, but you go into a booth and the government has printed the ballot for you. Mm-hmm. And number three, um, the state, state governments, and this is the truly anomalous aspect, something that is um, truly unique for in, in American, the American system, is that the state governments then took control over the process of nominating party, party nominees. Um, and, that's the, and they did that through the introduction of the direct primary or as we call it now, just the primary. Mm-hmm. So primary elections which that we have today took, take the place of what used to be these informal uh, caucuses and conventions um, that would nominate can- candidates by sending delegates to various levels of politics, or various levels of the nomination process. Uh, they replace that with the quote-unquote direct primary administered by the state government, which is what we have now. So if you go and vote in the primary for any office, not just president, but also you know senator or whatever, you're not voting the primary, and that that primary that you're voting in is a government-administered election just like the general election. That may seem like, well, yeah, everybody knows that. That's how the system works. But only in America does the system work like that. I mean, a political party in any other country is considered to be a private, voluntary organization. It's like the NAACP or the ACLU. You, don't, you know, the ACLU doesn't elect their president in a government-administered election where the government makes the rules and decides... You know how the votes are going to be allocated and stuff, and you go to a you know local elementary school and you you vote for the president of your ACLU or the, or the American Legion or, or whatever other private organization. Uh, that's considered to be a, a private matter for for the for the organization. In America, only in America are political parties treated in this way as if they are arms of the state. And the reason they're treated that way is because these reforms were designed. By the state legislative, by the party bosses who passed these laws, they were designed. Number one, to solve the problem that they were facing that we just talked about. But they were, but they were also designed, of course, to maintain the um, the monopoly on power of the of the two parties. Uh, and so it sort of stood to reason that if you if the purpose and the intention is to maintain a system forever where the Democrats and Republicans are the only real legitimate. Um, uh, Legitimate alternatives, political alternatives, then sure you, you you pass a law that basically kind of without without literally making it impossible for third parties to to exist, you know you sort of entrench the idea that these are the two real parties, and and that's that's how it works. So the in in American jurisprudence, it's often said. In you know court opinions, when there are these cha- you know various challenges to um, decisions made in election law uh, d- uh, disputes, judges will often say that in the American system, uh, political parties are regulated public utilities. So that's the kind that's the model of what it is. And when you have that kind of a system, you get uh, it's not surprising that you would get um, rules that that implement the system in such a way as to uh suppress challenges from outside and that's what we have today.
1: Sounds like something the Gambino crime family would be quite envious of.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean it's that's yeah it's it's pretty yeah it's a very it's actually a very crime family uh uh it's, it's similar to a crime family, especially in the way that sort of you pay, people at the bottom pay tribute to the people next up in line, and they, they give tribute to the people next up in line beyond them. Um, but this is, as you, as you were mentioning at the, at the outset, this is, this is what ballot access is all about. It's about keeping out uh, challengers to the Democrats and Republicans. And so that's where I talk about all the rules and regulations that you have that, are, that really don't have any counterpart anywhere else. Is that's, that was the origins of that system, of those rules.
1: Okay, so we've spent quite a bit of time in the 19th century. Uh, Your article in in the print version of uh, Jacobin has a fantastic chart uh, where we talk uh, about how the uh, ballot excess and uh, electoral laws have shifted between uh, 1888 to to 2016 um, in terms of how fusion voting, which is something we're going to get to very shortly, was uh, made illegal in in, in many states and and so on and so forth. And these are other hurdles that we'll, we'll sort of have to account for. So before we get to talking about the actual workings of uh, your party of a new type, let's talk a little bit. Let's jump ahead about, uh, you know, only 100 years. uh, And uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, the effort to found a labor party in the United States in the 1990s, because this is really a test case uh, that you that you bring up uh, in the article um what was this uh, effort what did it look like to found a new labor party and and what were some of the pitfalls and and some of the debates within the within that movement
2: the labor party uh, was uh, they held they uh, held their founding convention in 1996 i believe and um the context here the background is is the ferment that was going on within the labor movement in the late 80s and early 90s um the 80s were obviously a Hugely dramatic period for the labor movement, and especially for the industrial unions. Um, you know, the many unions in manufacturing sectors and the miners, and, and uh, those kinds of uh, those kinds of organizations. They had been, um, you know, the '80s were the era when uh, you know companies started uh, uh, deliberately provoking strikes because now they would just use uh, permanent replacement replacements to destroy the union, um, rather than strikes being something that the unions would you know, provoke in order to, to win gains. Mm-hmm. So uh, in, instead of finding the Democratic Party being a, you know, a helpful ally trying to help them uh, in this situation, uh, they got Bill Clinton, and, and Clinton in 93 um, pushed NAFTA, which of course was a terrible thing from the point of view of the industrial unions uh, that were hurting the most already. And this created an atmosphere within the labor movement that, um, uh, to the to the greatest extent since uh, the mid nineteen forties, there was there was a sentiment within the mainstream labor movement. Uh, I, I'm not going to say it was overwhelming um, uh, overwhelming sentiment or, or unanimous, but it was the strongest sentiment for for creating a third party, a, a labor party, that we had had in fifty years. So um, it was spearheaded by Tony Mazzocchi, who is the uh, president of the oil and chemical workers oil chemical and atomic workers union he was mazoki was a great uh really kind of a heroic figure in the post-war labor movement an old an old red um from uh, from a from an old left-wing tradition and um and mazoki sort of gathered support around him from other unions and uh there was a, a number of industrial unions that joined the effort and they held their founding convention, and their their idea was that they were going to do what labor parties have always sought to do, which was to um, you know to become a, a, a permanent force in the political system uh, as the political voice of the working class. And uh, the party um, uh, had a great amount of momentum uh, behind it uh, for the first uh, couple years. But it sort of ran aground um, quite quickly, actually. And the, the basic story there is that there was the, the great question was, you know, how are we actually going to relate to elections? From the very beginning, Mazzocchi and the people around him, including Mark Dudzik, uh, had a, a very clear um, insistence. And they made this clear from the very beginning, and this was sort of the, the, the understood uh, it was understood that this was the the orientation of the labor party was that they were they were not just going to go out and kind of do a a green party style um spoiler campaign you know just for the sake of uh having their name on the ballot and 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 you know making their case and um it was not going to be just a symbolic exercise for them, so they were they were not going to be uh, involved in elections where they had no chance of winning, and they they weren't and especially not in elections where they might uh, be div- there be divisions within the labor the local labor movement where you'd have some unions wanting to support whoever the local Democrat was, and then you know you get the labor party coming in there and splitting the labor vote the labor support by saying no we have got to run this third party candidate um, the the guy. Headlines from the very beginning, where you know we're only going to actually go into the field and compete in elections in those places and at those times when we have consolidated. Number one, um, that that our our candidate will be the candidate of the labor movement in that local area, so there's not going to be a divided labor movement. And number two, that we've generated a sufficient amount of genuine support and commitment uh, at the local level from. From, you know, volunteers and and activists so that that we have a a real serious shot of winning and not just be a protest vote.
1: Right. So not to jump ahead, but this sounds a little bit like uh, the strategy used by uh, organizations like Socialist Alternative, like, say, in Washington State with uh, Shama Sawant. In terms of trying to find, you know, the left is figuring out, trying to figure out how to intervene in certain elections so that they don't spoil elections, and and where they could have certain structural power with labor and so on and so forth. And so, this seems like a nice test case uh, for for looking at the way that the left is currently, um, you know, orienting to electoral politics. Wouldn't you say?
2: Yeah, I think I think in some ways it was a it was a test case. Um, uh, I mean, you know, I guess that depends on how you interpret. The experience that they went through, because um, if you if you ask, I mean, ultimately, what happened was not so much that they went ahead and ran in in, in campaigns and lost, but that they really never got to the point that Mizuki had sort of sketched out about where we would need to be in order to start start getting involved in races, um, and so they never got to that point. And then, you know, the reason they never got to that point was really more about. Um, uh external factors um and, and especially number 1 um the 2000 election uh where nader uh ended up um, you know either taking or not taking depending on your point of view uh you know taking the election in florida away from al gore or, or whatever uh which whatever you think about that it created an atmosphere on the left uh that was sort of shell shocked about the idea of third party uh, uh, Races, But then much more sort of uh, important in a kind of a long-run structural sense, uh, the 2000s arrived, and and the 2000s were a really disastrous time, uh, in some ways even worse than the 80s, for the uh, manufacturing um, unions, because there was a vast surge of imports from from China, and it was really one of the worst decades for manufacturing in American history. So uh, the very unions that had been at the core of the effort um, ended up suffering really bad, serious decline. And, and, you know, when there's decline uh, in the labor movement, that inevitably generates political defensiveness. So instead of going out and really trying to push things to the left, it's just about saving what you have.
1: It sounds like at the precise time they finally got their act together to intervene in elections, the uh, the structural uh, sort of forces of global capitalism sort of struck back. and oh, absolutely! Uh, and pulled the rug out from underneath of them, in, in some senses,
2: exactly. It was it was tragic in that in that sense. I mean, I guess you could you could wonder about what things would have been like, you know, if if uh, the labor party effort had happened twenty years earlier. Uh, although, you know, under the old the old uh, Lane Kirkland style, uh, AFL-CIO, it's, it's, uh, it's doubtful whether it could have gotten off the ground back then. Mm-hmm. But, um, so, you know, whether or not they really got to test, uh, they get to be a test case is, is an open question. Um, what, where, you know, where I came in, in this, in, in my article, where I, I, I really, uh, was thinking a lot about the labor party experience. And I, um, when I first started sketching out these ideas that I put in, in the article, uh, I, I ran them by, Adolf Reed and Mark Dudzik, from the who were key and, and central in, in the Labour Party experience, just to see what they thought of it, uh, because I thought that you know, in addition to the to the stru- broad uh, structural forces that ended up uh, doing in the Labour Party experiment, um, I had I had a sort of a critique of their of their approach to the electoral issue. I mean, in terms of just how to approach elections. And that's something that Mark Dudzik actually said in some interview years ago where he said basically, um, you know, ultimately, in retrospect, we did not um, really – we did not think seriously enough about how directly to relate to, to elections. Um, and, and ultimately, they're, the way they sort of always kind of assumed by default that this would work is that it would be a, a party, a third party in the American sense you know, they would go, they would get ballot access, presumably. I mean, I don't think that there was a lot of ex- explicit discussion about these kinds of mechanics, or maybe there were, and I, and I don't know the, the details. It probably differed from place to place. But the point is that there was never any questioning of the idea that that would be the basic approach, that you would, you know, get access and and, and status as a, as a third party called the Labour Party, and you would get that name on the ballot, and, you know, if and when it came to the point of running election campaigns. Um, and, I, the the sort of question that I open with is: Is that really the right assumption? The right strategy?
1: Right on. So you you sort of uh, offer a different method here at this point. It would be a good time to talk about uh, the sort of actual workings of the party of a new type that you're suggesting. So contrary to the way that the labor party worked and running their own candidates, you are proposing a different model. Maybe you could explain that to us a little bit.
2: Well, I definitely think that uh, this this uh, new Party kind of concept that I'm talking about needs to run its own candidates. That's actually a central, a central point. But yes, what, what you, I, I see what you're what you're getting at. Um, yes, that's the 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 basic insight that I that I'm trying to to argue is that what's most important in an effort like this uh, is not the is not the ballot line. So, in fact, the whole concept of the ballot line as something, as this prize that you need to go after and you need to win, and that's what makes you an actual party, is that you've got your name on the ballot, uh, is really a, just an artifact of these election laws that are themselves the root of the problem. So, in some ways, you're buying into the system that is that is oppressing you, you know, by, by, by accepting this idea that the ballot line d- defines what is a, an independent party. Um, and that's, that's the trap we're in. So instead, what I try to think through is what is it about a party that makes it something desirable for the left to have? You know, uh, in, in intra-left debates, uh, it's always a debate between, you know, people who say we should have a third party versus people who say we should work within the Democratic Party. And I think, you know, both sides probably sort of tacitly agree that if we could have a third party and have it be sort of... Um, functional and, and be a, a genuine competitor, that that would be great. You know, even the people who say work within the Democratic Party, if they're on the left, there are people who would love to have a third party, but they think that it's not really feasible. And again, that's because we are defining party according to ballot line, whereas the the, the real question you have to ask is, why do why is it so advantageous to have a party? What does having a party give you, give the left, mm-hmm. um, that, you know, that, that makes it something worth having? And what that is is not a ballot line, which is just a bureaucratic administrative thing, but what a party what a party is, what it, what makes it a powerful, um, the central uh, actor in connecting um, a, a public of, of people, a of, of citizenry, with the political process, with the political system, is that the, the main ingredients of this are number one, it's it's an organization that has a mass membership. Number two. That that mass membership, you know, comes around, comes together around a program and, and develops an independent platform that says this is what we want to see change in this, in this society. This is our vision for society. Number three, they go out and they take that platform and they present it to the public and they try to educate the public around it and say this is why we would all be better off if our platform were reality. Um, here's what you ought to understand about the nature of American society. And then number four, the, the the membership of the organization, now that it's got this platform, then in some ways as the last step in, in, in a certain sense, goes about trying to recruit candidates who can represent it in elections uh, to get its message out, to maximize its chances of winning seats, to get its, to get the maximize the number of votes, but also just to just to just to further amplify the voice of the platform and of the, the membership, of the of the political vision of the organization. Those are the things that make a party a vast, an incredibly powerful, potentially powerful organization is because it, it, it ultimately what it can do if it, if it succeeds is it becomes a sort of repository for people, for ordinary people's um, understanding of, of politics. People understand the political system, the political process through the prism of political parties. That's why partisan identification uh, not just in America, but in any country, is the most powerful determinant of how people vote—not just vote, but also how they understand what the issues are in politics and, and how they relate to those issues. Like how they define their interests as as citizens, they define it through their preconceived visions, understandings, uh, you know, of of the parties and which party they identify with and who, the, who those parties stand for, what groups in society those parties stand for. All those things, all those images in people's minds are what determine how, pe- how, how ordinary people think about politics because it, the actual details of politics are so vast and complex. There's so many different areas of policy and... And 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 personnel and the, I mean, just understanding just the election system, let alone all the policies that the that the politicians have to decide on, is just such a vast thing that even if you spend your whole life trying to trying to understand it, it it's all escapes you. But for most people who don't have their you spend get gets to spend their whole lives understanding it, they understand it only through the parties
1: right. and so- where the
2: parties stand.
1: So it seems, in order to capture what, what folks uh, call normies in a, in a sort of uh, loving way, uh, folks like uh, you know, maybe perhaps their own parents or some of our friends, uh, is not to sort of uh, these folks don't have their preconceptualized political views in, a, in really nuanced and uh, 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 well formed ways, and then they sort of apply those to the buffet of political party options. It's that the political parties themselves help shape. Uh, the, the political opinions of the masses. And so seems that what you're suggesting is that we need to intervene at that level, right? Where exactly. we need to have a party apparatus that can sort of provide a sort of political lead of sorts uh, to help uh, folks come to these conclusions.
2: That's exactly it. Um, and that's why, that's why, number one, that's why the ballot line is such a sort of, I don't want to say it's completely irrelevant, but it certainly doesn't doesn't play any re- much of a role in that process. Uh, maybe a little bit of a role, but really not much. Um, that 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 powerful process that I, you did. I thought that was a that was a really good summary of how it works. Is you know the way that the parties structure how people understand politics. That process really doesn't involve the ballot line very much. After all, the ballot line is just something that people see once every two years or once every four years for ten minutes in in a in a voting booth. You know, um, so so you don't so. Instead of thinking – now, that doesn't mean that you, you can dispense with running candidates because the, the reason – you know you might think, well, if, if those are – if structuring how people see politics and all that, if that's what parties are about, then why do you even need to run candidates? Why couldn't you just set up an organization, mass membership organization, has a platform, and then forget about the candidates and just propagandize your, your vision of politics? And the answer is that there's something about – you know unless people – Look, there's a million organizations in the world, and there's a million websites that will each give you your, their opinions on every issue in the world. You know, anyone can start a website and, and, and put their opinions on it. But th- with all those millions of websites and millions of organizations, there's no particular reason for any, any given person to pay attention to any of them. Why should you? You can't pay attention to all of them, and why would you pay attention to any particular one of them? But what forces people to pay attention is when, uh, is when actual power is up for grabs. That's why elections are such – election campaigns can be such powerful focusing devices where suddenly for just a few months uh, every f- every few years, for those few months, people are really focusing. I mean look at what happened in the Sanders campaign. Mm-hmm. It's a perfect example of that. Uh, you know, for, for several months, uh, as if it was like some sort of bizarre – like. Carnival type uh, inversion of roles or something. There was a guy who called himself a democratic socialist and who, in practice, was you know at least a kind of a decent New Deal liberal, um, going around spreading his message. And the, the the TV networks had to run it, and people had to hear about it, and people talked about it, and he reached. Uh, his message reached a vast number of people who never even pay attention to politics usually. If they wanted to, they could all year round every year, they could go on the web and find the same opinions or the same views that Bernie Sanders was, was putting forward, but they never would have done that had he not run and had he not been contesting for power, which forces people to pay attention to him and forces people to sort of Force other people to pay attention to him, and so there was this huge focusing moment, and that's the value of election campaigns. That's why they're so essential. You can't just have a membership organization, you know, propagandizing its message because no one will have any reason to pay attention to it. You have to also run candidates.
1: Right. I don't mean to. I don't mean to besmirch uh, anybody, any left organization. Uh, I, I've been a member of uh, far left sects in the past. I have to uh, admit, uh, somewhat uh, and ashamedly, uh, but like, look at the Democratic. Socialists of America—they're doing fantastic work, right? They their their membership roles are expanding two and three times over in just a few months' time. But I think you know you rightly point out that these are the sort of self-selected cadres of, of the left movement, and and although they number in the thousands, which is like historically you know important in terms of being a uh, material gain, uh, you know you win elections in the millions, not the mm. thousands. That's right, and so it seems to me that this is a really essential argument, even despite the fact that like the membership roles of of left and far left organizations are really growing right now.
2: Yeah, I th- and I think that's a really important point. I mean, I, I, I you know I, I assume and I think I know that people, uh, at least at least a lot of the people who um, who've been around for this kind of thing for a while in DSA, people in DSA. Probably do understand this. Many of them do. People I know do. You know that seventeen thousand or whatever the number is of people who are members is, is, a, is a great sign of progress. But it's, it doesn't mean that you know it's not the kind of scale that will change society. Which is one reason why I think people in DSA are, are you know urgent or impatient to actually start running candidates or something like that. But, but the, the broader point, yeah, I think I think that's a that's a that's a, that's a really good way of of putting it and. Um, and if you can harness that focusing device that can attract the attention and uh, hopefully the commitment of millions of people rather than just thousands, that focusing device that is the election process, you know, the, the, the contest for actual power, uh, which forces people to pay attention, then it can be a really powerful thing in order to change people's understanding of the political world and change how they see their interests uh, line up in, in that political world. So that's that's the basic. Purpose of the organization that I'm proposing, um, and in order to do that, uh, the the ballot line ends up being a, a distraction, because um, as you can tell from uh, all of these third parties who uh, whose basically whose main purpose for existing is to get on the ballot, and beyond that. Not, they don't even seem to care very much further about what what happens after that. But getting on the ballot is, is a major deal. Obviously, that that really doesn't get you anywhere. And because getting on the ballot is so deliberately difficult for you know it's, it's not an accident, but it's deliberately meant to be as difficult as possible. Um, you, it's very easy to divert people. Uh, who ought to be doing the kind of work that that we were just talking about of creating a, an alternative political vision and propagandizing it and getting that message out there instead to be devoting their time to gathering petition signatures for ballot access petitions and you know waging uh, lawsuits when they get uh, when they get screwed by the election authorities. Um, so that's why this ballot line issue uh, which so obsesses so many people is really kind of a red herring. There's so many people who you know, who get into these arguments about, well, you know, if you run, uh, you know, Bernie Sanders got a huge amount of flack from various people on the far left because he was sheepdogging people into the Democratic Party. He was a Democrat. He was running as a Democrat. And what that really just means is that he was running in a Democratic primary. Um, But at the same time, he was, you know, he was quite savagely criticizing the Democratic Party and, and, and doing so in a way that that helps him get across his alternative message, which was one that was quite different from Hillary Clinton's. Um, if he can use that Democratic Party ballot line, that primary uh, that primary line, uh, in order to do that, then I think that, you know, who's who's getting the better of the of the situation? I mean, certainly it doesn't look like the Democratic Party powers that be were, we're looking at what Bernie Sanders did and thinking, ah, isn't this great? He's sheepdogging all these people into the Democratic Party. Right. I mean, so, some of them were the hoping the opposite, that. huh? quite the opposite. Yeah. I mean, they were undoubtedly hoping that oh, well, once we get this all wrapped up and give the nomination to Hillary Clinton, hopefully we'll keep some of those kids who came in for the Sanders campaign. That's a reasonable thing for them to hope. But uh that's not <laughs> that's not what uh what their main preoccupation was. The main preoccupation was this guy is really upsetting the apple cart and changing how people understand I think that that's that's in some ways the thing that's the, the thing that threatens them the most. It's not that Bernie Sanders might win you know, or his people who are allied to him might win this or that contest. Keith Ellison wins the DNC head or or something like that, or somebody in a state legislative race who Bernie Sanders endorsed is going to win. I don't think they care so much about that. I think what bothers them about Bernie Sanders is that he gets up and he talks, and he doesn't say, oh, but the Democratic Party is great, and we try our best, and we're terrific, but those nasty Republicans, they're doing all these mean things. Instead, he says, well, the Democratic Party does it too, and the Democratic Party is out of touch. And mm-hmm. and he has a platform. And he has he has a platform that can that where, you know, he, he's, he opens his mouth and for whatever reason, because he ran as this candidate, people pay attention. And that changes that, that that message he's beaming out is getting beamed out to all of these people who are exactly the target market, so to speak, for the Democratic Party establishment. And here those people are hearing from Bernie Sanders, this very trustworthy figure, that the Democratic Party isn't so great either. That's the real threat to them. And so it just really emphasizes the extent to which having that platform that only exists, nobody cared about what Bernie Sanders said two years ago when he was just a, a mere senator, you know, but having that platform is, is invaluable in giving people, in giving the left the leverage, the potential leverage to change how ordinary people understand politics. So, you know, it's, so it's not just the Democrats versus the Republicans. And the only thing that you can be in, in American politics is a Hillary Clinton liberal or a or a Donald Trump uh, Republican. Uh, it, there's more to it than that. That's it opens things up.
1: That's an essential point. Uh, unfortunately, we're not going to be able to cover the inner workings of the, the kind of party of a new type that you're proposing. I encourage once again everybody look. If you, if you don't go and read a blueprint for a new party by Seth Ackerman, uh, you're you're not a worthwhile human being. You're not a serious member of the left. As far as I'm, I don't concerned. endorse
2: that opinion. Um,
1: I, <laughs> take that, take that as an Adam Proctor exclusive, if you will. Um, it, this is a really important topic, and and Seth lays out the the sort of uh, the X's and O's, and even in terms of how you would uh, sort of uh, incorporate this party in this sort of like uh, legal apparatus of the American state in, a, in an interesting sort of way. You uh, offer it's sort of like a what is it, a five hundred one C, not a three. What, what what's the affiliation you four five hundred one C four. Yeah, 501C in terms of being able to raise money and, and being tax-exempt and all those types of things, right? So these are really important questions. So I would encourage everybody, you have to go look at this article. We don't have time to cover everything, but it's all there. Um, I have just a couple more questions. Uh, you are <laughs> you're on the Jacobin editorial board, so surely you must be aware that this question of electoralism as the primary vehicle of social change, and I don't really mean the primary, scratch that word, but as an essential vehicle of social change, as, as you've laid out, that proposition is not hegemonic on the far left, right? There are many of folks who say that uh, the American state is rigged. Um, It's irretrievable. We sort of need to burn it down (laughs) and start over. Uh, This is the insurrectionist model of a lot of uh, quote-unquote revolutionary socialists. Now, whether or not they adhere to that in practice is another question, but that's certainly kind of the origin of their uh, various forms of Trotskyism and, and so on and so forth. So, I love the article. It was fantastic. But let's also reach out to those folks who may be shaking their heads and calling you some kind of bourgeois reformist. Right. Why is it uh, that the U.S. state uh, must be challenged as a site for power in the electoral arena, as opposed to those uh, who take a more revolutionary perspective, per se?
2: Well, that's I I mean, I think that's what I was trying to get at uh, just now about the about the nature of that platform. And, you know, if you want to get into the socialist history of it. I mean, it was famously August Babel, uh, I believe, the head of the uh, German Social Democratic Party, mm-hmm. who said that um, the purpose of, for him, for of, of contesting elections was that it was a way to, in his words, uh, speak to the workers through the windows of parliament. Um, uh, so... The idea is that it it, it is a propaganda device. Uh, at least, at the very least, it can't be just a propaganda device because if it were purely a propaganda device, then it would actually be um, rather dishonest. You know, you're you're urging ordinary people to vote for you because mm-hmm. you claim that you could make their life better, but then you know secretly you are saying, oh, actually, the only purpose in this for me is is just to is as a, pla- a, a platform for propaganda, not to make anybody's lives better. Um, but you know, even if you're, even if you're approaching it from the from the point of view of a, of a purely revolutionary perspective, uh, that was after all that was Marx's point of view. I mean, one of the main dividing lines in Marx's day among socialists was this question of electoral participation, and if anything, that was the one thing, um, that was the that was in basically the one thing that most uh, most perfect, most consistently distinguished the quote unquote Marxist factions. Of various le- uh, labor movements right. from the non-Marxist factions, it so essentially be, brought
1: down the First International. In some respects, that that sort of like dividing question about how to relate uh, to to elections.
2: Yeah, absolutely. That was one of the central um, the central uh, controversies in it. And from Marx's point of view, that was you know if you the only way you know his his politics were were premised almost uh, in terms of within intra-left debates. You know his his and Engels main. Uh, point was, in order to the, you know you, you're, we're not going to change things by starting communes we're not going to change things by, uh, you know prop, uh, passing around utopian literature about what the future society is going to be with you know blueprints uh, uh, for for a future socialist society we're going to change things by forming a party that was what the communist manifesto uh, said that what the communists do is form a party of the working class mm-hmm. um, he obviously didn't mean a party in in the sense of, you know, registering ballot access or anything, but he did mean a party that would do all the things that I talked about uh, earlier, which is, you know, have a a, a mass membership organization that has a platform that lays out a vision for politics and its vision of society and propagandizes it to the masses, and yes, runs for elections, which, which in fact, one of the last things that uh, Karl Marx wrote was uh, the preamble to um, the to a, a, an electoral platform in 1880? He wrote the preamble to the French Workers Party uh, platform, where they the first time that they ran in an election, and you know he said uh, he, he sort of laid out in a few lines what what the socialist idea was all about. And he said, with those considerations in mind, the French Socialist Party goes into the elections this you know, August or whatever with the following uh, concrete demands. And then you know, he handed it over to the local party people to write what their demands were. But that was, that was the core of what it meant to be a Marxist as opposed to some other kind of a socialist, is that you would form a party and you would, uh, maybe less centrally important but still important, you would contest elections.
1: That's right. August Nimst uh, is a professor, I believe, at the University of Minnesota and a, and a good socialist. He has a, a fantastic book. Uh, about how Marx and Engels uh, really contribute. I think this is called the contribution to the democratic breakthrough. And it, it talks uh, contrary to the Trotskyites and so on and so forth that are kind of hegemonic on, on one wing of the far left in the United States. He talks about exactly what you've just mentioned, is that uh, Marx and Engels uh, were very much in favor of forming democratic and accountable uh, working class parties and then testing their strengths in uh, in various elections uh, when it was possible in order to kind of uh, – it was a kind of um, – it was like taking a temperature of the movement, right, in some mm-hmm. senses, in terms of trying to see where the people were and, and how far along uh, the, the class struggle was going. So mm-hmm. we only have about five minutes left. I have one final question for you. We've laid out the critique. We've shown how the ballot access uh, and the ballot line has been falsely uh, equated with uh, you know parties and running uh, candidates and so on and so forth. Uh, we've talked about the need for a party of a new type. We've laid out a little bit about what it would look like. What is the first step to getting there? You know, so, I mean, that, that's always the question. It's always the final question. It's annoying as hell. I apologize for being the one to ask it. But how do we get there? Uh, how do we get from where we are in Trump, uh, Trump land 2017 uh, to having a party of the new type? And how, how might we initiate that process?
2: Well, I mean, that's obviously a really good question. I mean, it's not uh, – you don't have to apologize for asking it, but it is – but you're right. It is like the, the most annoying question in the sense that it's the hardest one. Um, I guess, I mean, the first thing I would say is that, unfortunately, I don't think we're we're, we're quite there yet. Uh, you know, it, one thing that – right in the process of researching and writing the article – and then kind of responding looking at how people responded to it and answering questions about it and you know responding to objections and, and things like that really being forced to think through my own idea uh, was it really impressed on me how uh, how how large a scale this kind of a venture needs to be and how and how ultimately I don't want to say how difficult it is it would be difficult but really how the sort of degree of difficulty involved the the the, the scale of the enterprise that would be necessary and therefore the you know the 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 size of the kind of thrust force that we would need in terms of numbers of people, um, and not just in numbers, but in terms of of you know the distribution of people around the country. Obviously, I mean our elections are are done um, you know by district for the most part, and and so you know you have to compete in a lot of different places. So I don't think we're we're quite there yet. Um, and and I, I did say at the very end that I didn't think that such a thing would be possible without at least would be feasible without at least a, a section a significant section of the labor movement going along with it and I don't I don't really see many signs that there is a, a significant section of the labor movement that is yet I think there's a lot of people in the labor movement who are interested in this, these kinds of ideas who don't dismiss them out of hand and, and who would like to to you know keep these ideas uh, in in mind but I, I, we're not at the point where um, a significant fraction of the labor movement would be willing and able uh, to, to plunge in and and help uh, form part of the core of, of this kind of a project. Um, so then the question is, you know, how do you get there? And, um, you know, I, I don't ha- necessarily have an answer. But one answer I saw recently, or, you know, one one way of describing this that I saw somebody else recently um, uh, offer. Who was it? It might have been... Mike Davis, or I forget who, somebody writing in Jacobin, maybe, but
1: Mike Davis um, had a fantastic article on that in Jacobin. Uh,
2: yeah, yeah, yeah I, and I just don't ago. remember if that was if that was the piece that I'm thinking of. But in any case, somebody said, well, you know, maybe you could have maybe it was Sam Gindin. He also had a piece in Jacobin that was quite good, right, right. Um, saying that you know it, you maybe you need to start out with um, local groups in a lot of different places locally, uh, trying to do this kind of thing on their own local scale. Uh, and then scale up eventually, you know, eventually if they, they find themselves having success and, and, and they, they see themselves, they start increasingly seeing themselves as part of a sort of a national wave and a, and a, with momentum behind them that they could federate their forces and, you know, maybe call a founding convention for a, a new national organization. That's one, one route. Uh, that you could imagine, and um, you know, because I don't have uh, a particular s- a particular roadmap um, that I think is you know the superior roadmap. I'm open to all of these kinds of ideas. Um, I guess from that, in terms of that proposal of you know starting out local in a lot of different places, and then and then maybe uh, joining them together at some point in the future. My I guess my main concern would be that um, you know I, I think a, a key uh, asset in any kind of, a uh, of a venture like this is the national scale because people ultimately pay attention to things that are national and they pay much less attention to things that are local. Um, so that's one possible uh, concern. But on the other hand, of course, it's, it's much more feasible to, um, organize something locally in a place, you know, th- that has a lot of, a uh, lot of left-wing ferment going on at the grassroots than it is to organize it nationally. So maybe you just need to put the first foot forward where you can, uh, and do it that way. Uh, I don't really have a I don't have a um, a magic uh, a magic um, prescription for how to do this, uh, but uh, you know in, I guess in part it will depend on the terrain that we're operating on. Nobody knows what you know Donald Trump is going to do in the next you know twenty four hours, let alone the next four years. Um, so I guess we're going to have a lot of opportunities to see you know what opportunities the the conjuncture hands us, and then we'll have to respond appropriately.
1: That's a fantastic answer. Uh, it seems like the contradictions that we're dealing with have been laid bare uh, by the past, you know, 17 or 18 years of social movements culminating in the in the candidacy of uh, Bernie Sanders. Uh, so it sounds like it's up to us to continue pressing on those fractures uh, so that we can figure out what comes next. And uh, as you've just laid out, in essence, uh, we'll make that path by walking on it. So uh, Seth Ackerman, you performed a valuable service in this effort. Thank you so much for that. Uh, Thanks for joining us on the Dead Pundit Society. Come back and talk to us soon about these efforts.
2: Thank you, Adam. I enjoyed it.
1: And thanks so much for tuning in. That was our show. If you liked it, please tell your friends, tell your mom, phone your grandma. Go on iTunes, subscribe, give us a good rating if you're so inclined. If you're on SoundCloud, go ahead and give us a subscribe there. Uh, We'll be posting a lot of great content week after week. We've got some great guests lined up. Uh, We're going to be talking a little bit about electoral politics, uh, the shit fest that the Democrat Party uh, is at this point in time, race and labor, and next week we'll be touching on the U.S. South and rural America. Uh, Just on a side note, I'd like to thank Otis McDonald for the music that you heard on this podcast. Uh, Those people bring the funk. All right. Until next week.
0: Peace. Oh,